0: Thanks for listening to the Tribe Church Podcast. Our prayer is that these episodes bless and equip you in your apprenticeship to Jesus. Our goal as a community is to become more like Jesus and to offer Him through our lives to those around us here in Austin, Texas. More like Jesus, more for others. For more on our church, check out atxtribe.org. God bless. All right, living in community, living in community. I want to tell you a story of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, World War II Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German theologian and a pastor in the Lutheran church. And he's kind of disenchanted with the church as it's going with the Nazi party in many ways. And he started this underground seminary of other people, other ministers and and other followers of Jesus who would take the gospel seriously. And they lived communally. They focused their lives around love for God and love for one another. It was kind of an intense experiment into the one another relationships as the Bible defines them. And they focused on this loving God, loving one another and spiritual formation in that practice. Now, if you don't know what spiritual formation is, I say that uh, it's just another way of saying spiritual formation is all about who you are becoming by who you are today. Does that make sense? And so it's the person you become is a spiritual formation based on the practices and the habits and the rhythms and the values that you live in today. And everybody has a spiritual formation. You either go more towards Christ or you go more towards the formation of the world. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, man, we are going to really lean in. How much can we lean into the spiritual formation of Christ in community? And this is where he wrote his two most popular books, The Cost of Discipleship, and this other book called Life Together, which is all about this experience. And after Life Together came out, one of his friends uh, came to see Bonhoeffer. He was a. Um, Dietrich uh, grew up in an educated and kind of well to do family and uh, socially esteemed family. And so here he is kind of doing this radical thing. And his friend comes to see him and goes, Hey, you know, Dietrich, maybe it's, this is great, but maybe you should cool off a little bit. It's getting a little weird, right? And Dietrich takes him out on a boat and he rows his boat across the river from where he was having this community. And they go to a hilltop, and they climb to the top of the hill together, and they look down, and there they can see Nazi airplane fighters landing and taking off, and soldiers in training camps. And Bonhoeffer spoke of this new generation of Germans that were training, those who were disciplining themselves and were forming, quote, a kingdom of hardness and cruelty, he said. It would be necessary, he explained to his friend, that that they would have then a superior discipline, a superior way of life amongst the Christians if the Nazis were to be defeated. Bonhoeffer said this to his friend. He said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. In other words, as he looked at his community and what he was leaning into in the way of Jesus, and he looked at the spiritual formation of these Nazis, he said to his friend, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger. This spiritual community of Christians must be stronger than the formation that the world is doing. Discipleship to Jesus in community. Now listen, I'm not calling the world around us Uh, A Nazi culture, okay? So we can just kind of like bring that trigger word down a little bit. Uh, But I am saying that the world around us, the culture that we live in, where billions of dollars are earmarked every year, to keep you buying and scrolling and consuming and behaving in a certain way, that world is trying intentionally to shape you. The formation of thought that says, your life is your own. You belong to no one. Your authority and personal truth and personal autonomy, it is the highest ideal. It's the formation that comes from a belief that we're just some kind of cosmic accident that happened where we, we just, we, we're biological lottery winners of some organic compounds that happened to be in the right place at the right time, somewhere 3.8 billion years ago, right? And now we're just kind of operating on these prehistoric instincts of sex and we want to eat fats and sugars and we're afraid of leaves that rustle because it might be a tiger or whatever that is, right? Like, we're kind of, this is who we are, we're, we're biological lottery winners, this is, this is a worldview, that shapes us, shapes our behavior, shapes our relationships. It's the spiritual formation that has led us to the most individualist society in all of humanity. And in America specifically, the most individualist society the last hundred years has ever seen. Sociologists explain the two dominant cultures today in this way, and I'm going to put them up here for definition for you. Individualist or collectivist society. So an individualist is another way of saying you are relationally oriented, your rights and your interests are relationally oriented above the interests of the group. And if that doesn't explain our political parties today, I don't know what does, right? But a collectivist society is where you are relationally oriented towards the rights and the interests of the group above your own. Now, we're not entirely an individualist society, obviously, right? We still are human beings. And this whole individualist enterprise is a bit of a, it's a bit of an experiment in the human story. And we see collectivist experiences like 9-11, where people step out and they cross lines and they give to their neighbors and they take care of one another's needs. But I would argue with the exception of kind of in a general way, right? Gross generalization but I would argue that with the exception of natural disasters or wars where we nationally have to rally the nation to protect something, we operate day-to-day more in an individualist way. Would you agree? And again, in a bit of a, a gross exaggeration, but to make the point, we really have everything we need in the U.S. today to end hunger, to end homelessness, Everything we need to house every single child that's currently in the foster care system. Everything we need to take care of the elderly so that they don't spend their last years in a dorm room with strangers. I learned a new word the other day. It's called elder orphans. And it's a sociological... Phrase for this generation of elderly people that are literally alone like they have no family They've lived so hard and shaped so firmly into this individualist society that they're spending their last years alone We have what it takes, but we don't do it. Why? Well, simply because it's inconvenient to our individualist lives It would cost too much and after all, they're not my kids. They're not my family Why should I have to pick up the slack for someone else's responsibility? And we don't say that out loud, but how we live and shape society says that. So we create an industry out of these things. We pass government policies to handle it. We continue to write our individual stories untethered, seemingly untethered by the problems of others, except maybe for, I don't know, a few tax dollars that we have to give to it. Right. But even there, it's kind of like, man, my kids don't go to school. Why do I have to write these sentiments? That we wrestle with, and this is not a critique on our society. It's really not. It's more of just an observation of what is. It's what we built, and by and large, it actually works for an individual society. You're all surviving pretty well today, right? For an individual society, and I'm all for democracy, and I, I really actually like living in a capitalist society. This is not a critique, but. We have to observe what we've built, and what is it forming in our humanity? You guys okay with that? So what does all this on-our-own way of living produce? The most anxious, insecure, self-consumed, and medicated culture on the planet. And the most wealthy. Pew Research Center did a, a study on the correlation of GDP of a country Listen, this is so interesting. GDP of a country and the amount of people that live alone in that country. And no surprises, right? The countries with the highest GDP had a direct correlation to the highest percentage of people that lived alone. Why? Because our ruthless pursuit of the self by means of increasing the bottom dollar, by means of having more power of capital ourselves, it has become our identity and our primary work in this life is to do our job so efficiently that we become that person. And it's left us lonely. More than a quarter million people today live alone in the U.S., more than ever before in our country. Now, we're not going to change the American culture, and actually that's not the point, but the question is, how do we, how does this become stronger than that? Are you with me right there? And, and how do we intentionally move away from the outcome of this individualist spiritual formation in our own lives? Well, enter Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's take a look here in Mark chapter 3. This is one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's early on in the gospel, and he's shaping now. He's beginning to try to formulate what this new group of followers, this kingdom come to earth, what it will look like, what ideals, what ideals and what values and what rhythms and habits will shape that people. In verse 31, as he's here in this house, it says, then Jesus, he's teaching in this house. It says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, So Jesus is teaching, and his mom comes to the door, and his brothers, they, they actually, other scriptures tell us, they think he's lost his mind. They're like, something's come over this guy, we got to figure, we got to get him back, right? And they come to take charge of him, and get him back to the family. And, and you kind of see Mary, you know, send somebody to the door, and hey, somebody goes up to Jesus, and hey, uh, Jesus, your mom says you got to go home, you know? It's kind of like this, <laughs> this moment, right? And Jesus is like, well, who's my mother? And man, you can imagine, for all the mothers, right? As Mary takes off her sandal, oh, who's your mother, right? Like, <laughs> you forgot the one that carried you for nine years, Jesus? And Jesus lived in a strong patriarchal culture. And this is, this is important for us to understand. And I'm going to explain it in a slide here in just a second. But it's one in which the bloodline and the future of the family was dependent on the men of the family. Like, and the family was everything. The family determined your career path, who you married, where you lived, everything. But your family was totally dependent on the connection to the Father. And here's kind of a a slide to explain this. Uh, Joseph Hellerman, in his book, uh, When the Church Was a Family, he's a professor of New Testament literature, he talks about this. And and he says that when the... Well, I'll just kind of explain this before I read that. This is the idea. So in the bold is the Father's lineage, right? And so... The father would have me, like my dad would have me and my sister, and then I would have my son and my daughter. And the connection to my wife or my sister's connection to her husband was less valuable, less prioritized than my sister's connection to me because we shared the same bloodline. Does that make sense? And so my wife had a different father and a different bloodline that in Certain situations she would have to be more loyal to than even me. This is the first century Mediterranean world that Jesus lived in. This is most of ancient culture, by the way. And this is what uh, Joseph Hellerman says in his book the blood bond between siblings, not between husband and wife, is the most intimate, nurturing, and ultimately satisfying relationship for the persons in collectivist cultures. The closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond of siblings. Correspondingly, the most treacherous act of human disloyalty in the ancient family was not disloyalty to one's spouse. It was the betrayal of one's brother so if you've got a brother or sister here in the room just give them a little nod and i got your back right as jesus defined the church family one of the sibling as as one of sorry as one of family one of siblings who are all connected to the same father his audience knew the implications of this new version of this kingdom They knew the implications of what this would mean for them should they choose to follow the way of Jesus themselves. And in a strong collectivist culture, Jesus suddenly became more than a teacher with good insights to listen to on the weekends when you got time. He became more than, his message was more than just a salvation message for the individual. This was now a community of people from all corners of Israel, all different walks. Forging family. They had differences politically, differences religiously even, racially, economic status, generationally. There were so many differences. And Jesus says that they're now family because of their connection to his father. And they're to see one another as siblings just as they see their own flesh and blood as siblings. So Jesus doesn't define the church as a club or as a or as a military or a government or any other number of ways we might organize people, right? He chooses to call it a family. And in that room, and for all time, and in this room now, he realigns his loyalties and his bonds beyond the scope of even just his physical family members. And he opens up a way of connecting with him and belonging that anyone can be a part of. And this is the gospel. The kingdom has come, and through the Son, all can be connected to the Father. Forging family. Now imagine you're the lonely tax collector. Some of you guys have seen The Chosen, the series The Chosen, right? It just does this great job of depicting the disciples and kind of their their backstories and their lives, and we've got Matthew, and he's just awkward, and and he's, lo- he's isolated, he's ostracized from society. Imagine you're the tax collector in that room that day. Or you're the prostitute. And Jesus looks across the table and says, we're family now. You're connected to me. I'm going to look out for you. And these are now your brothers and sisters. And the loyalty you know that you haven't even experienced is now yours. It's yours. Now imagine you're not the outcast. You're a pretty normal person. You're a stand-up guy, as far as you understand, right? And Jesus is telling you, this tax collector and this prostitute, now you're brother and sister. You're to treat them like family. How do you respond? I think for many of us, that's a little much. It feels a little much, Jesus. Like, I like church. I like the Bible. I like what you're doing for my life. But this idea of family, it's a little, it's a little extreme, Jesus, don't you think? Like, I, I, to just give me like a church where I can worship like I like give me a message that just kind of tickles my brain every weekend, makes me feel good. I showed up, right? Like, I'll even give some money. Hey, I may even get connected to a small group. Like, you know, I I can do that. But but look, I got to just say, the moment anyone starts to impede on my, you know, life and tries to convince me that their needs should now become my needs and Maybe they're, they, they want to hold me accountable or there's some expectation of me beyond what I'm comfortable with, then I'm, I'm out. I'll just go find another church that feels more like home. And to be clear, it's not just how we define church that's different from Jesus. It's actually how we define family today that's different from Jesus, when I think of family, and when you think of family, in 21st century America, we tend to think of this n- nuclear family, right? Mom and dad and 2.5 kids. I don't know what the 2.5 means, but I just know that's the saying, right? Like, 0.5, I don't know, is that like a half-baked baby somewhere in there? I don't know what that is. Is that the dog? I don't know. Is it the dog? It's the dog? Okay, some people say it's the dog. 0.5, dogs count for half a kid. But we kind of think of it that way, and those are the people that I'm responsible for. When I think about, you know, when you ask me about my family, those are the people I think of first. When I say I want a more family feel, I think of that framework. Do you need to get that? You got it? Hey, let me help you real quick. Because we're family, right? Because we're family. There it is. Living analogies. Um, we tend to look at it in this framework, but the nuclear family, if you know anything about the history of the nuclear family, it's really only about a 15-year American experiment. From about 1950 to 1965, it worked. It wasn't around before that. It didn't work after that. But in many of our minds, we're trying to get back to that idea of family. David Brooks, he wrote an article in The Atlantic, and it's, it's a really fascinating article, but he he points out some statistical data that shows what he calls the decentralization of family. Those who move away from kind of the large extended corporate you know, families, these, these interdependent you know, webs of family, those who live in cro- close proximity with the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the grandparents are all living under the same roof or, or maybe at least on the same block. And and the move away, from the decentralization of the family and all the things that brought it in the, 21st, in the 20th century, the move away to an even smaller, more fragile nuclear families. People that moved away for jobs or opportunities for wealth or homes. But with it, what happened was that the loss of a parent in a nuclear family, as we spread out this way, now displaced children. Tremendously. A divorce left them without the shepherding of a paternal male or female in their life. And today, more than ever, we have single-parent single families in the U.S. And so our, our culture, it actually, you know, they've said that the homeless population is actually just the fruit of the disintegration of the family because we used to have a social web that would take us in, that would help us with our addictions or our mental illness or our hard times financially. And because we've kind of moved into this way of doing family, we don't have that anymore, right? Some do, but most don't. So he says this, uh, and I've got a quote here for it. Oddly, uh, he says our culture is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness, but also mobility and dynamic capitalism and the liberty to adopt a lifestyle we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that make them possible. This is our tension, right, in the Western world. So what do we do? We call our companies families. You work for the Starbucks family, or the Apple family, or whatever your company is, I'm sure some manager or some HR department person at some point has said, Hey, we are the fill in the blank family around here. We substitute our jobs for a sense of family. We substitute our hobbies for a sense of community. I'm part of a running community or a CrossFit community, right? Why? Because in an individualist culture, family and community are defined really by those who agree with me and are are into the things I'm into and support my individual identity. And they help protect my individuality. Jesus defines the church and its community as a family. Not because they agree about everything, because you can just read the Gospels. They clearly do not agree about everything. And even in the first century church, man, it was hard to figure it all out because they were so different. But because they're deeply committed to the Father's will in their lives, and they include, that will includes loving people who are not like you. Loving people who are not your own, but making them your own loving people who are even your enemies as though they were you. Loving this group of mixed people from all kinds of backgrounds as brothers and sisters, just like your physical brothers and sisters, integrating them into your life in a way that is interdependent. And in that process, shapes you, forms you into a new type of human, a new type of family altogether. One of sacrifice and love and generosity and resolution and humility and rejoicing and grieving together and serving and providing for each other and parenting each other's children and helping one another's marriages because it's your marriage too. Like many of you, I grew up in the nuclear family framework. I was actually, it was actually, I was 19. I was living on the East Coast, the Northeast, and it was actually kind of easy for me to leave home. Like just get in a car, I had less than 200 bucks and drive to Los Angeles and just figure it out on my own, right? In fact, there was kind of like this subtle, almost expectation of go West, young man, right? <laughs> it's kind of just in our culture. You gotta figure it out. You're gonna go into college or you're gonna go get into the military or you're gonna go figure it out. I tried college, did not go very well that first year. So I said, I'm going to figure it out in my friend's Toyota as we drive across the country, land in Los Angeles. My parents were children of the, the baby boom era, and they went the hippie route. So my mom, you know, I don't know if she's going to mind me saying this, she was at Woodstock, like this was kind of their world, right? And they converted to Christianity in the 80s. So they had this framework of, re- of religion and Jesus. But their formula- formative years were really in that kind of 60s, 70s era of America that was all about self-actualization. Like everything was a revolution to get what you want. And so my idea of family was kind of shaped in that upbringing. And the way of Jesus, for me, I just got to say, it's incredibly counterintuitive, to how I naturally function, like to how I'm naturally wired. I don't naturally think of others in the church as family. But the practice of serving one another, of confessing to one another, of praying for one another, of encouraging one another, of, of speaking the truth to one another, of being accountable to others for the last 18 years, it's, it's shaped in me a different kind of worldview. And this is what Jesus is offering A worldview that sees a family in the church. A worldview that experiences a family in the church. And over the last 18 years, it's forged that in me. And I still have a long way to go. I hope I stay alive long enough to keep it going, right? For Jesus to keep working this way. The good in my life I owe to God through the church. And this is what you need to hear in an individualist culture. The good in my life I owe to God because of the church. Like, the church is where I got help to overcome addictions. The church is where I was pushed and encouraged back into education and to finish a degree and to go into a path of career. The church is where I met my wife in the church family, whoop, whoop, right? The church is where I've I've gotten help, the most help ever with my parenting and my kids. The church has helped me get jobs and cars and has helped me receive, you know, I've received so much help from the church in education, my school, with food. When I was single, the church helped me out, man. Car trouble, health issues, whatever. And I'm saying the church not as the institution or an acronym or or any leaders. What I'm saying is the church as the family of those who are committed to the way of Jesus in their lives that I just happen to be graced enough to know. And you happen to be graced enough to know. And the good in our lives is brought back because of this family of those who would take on us as brothers or sisters. But family is tough, right? And we all know the family member. <laughs> we all know the family member who's a little harder to be with than the other family members, right? Like, we, we know that person. The, the person at the dinner table that you're like, oh, good grief, here it comes, right? And if you don't know that person, guess what? You are that person in your family. <laughs> Others just haven't had the guts to tell you. But there is no option if we're truly seeking the kingdom of heaven, come to earth, if we're truly seeking what Jesus is offering in community, then we have to seek family. And family doesn't happen naturally in an individualist culture where we just want church to be convenient. We want small group to be easy for everybody to get along, for them to meet when I feel like meeting, for them when I don't feel like meeting, that they'll cater to me in some way, for the worship to meet all my needs. For the pre- Are you with me right there? We have to intentionally lean in. We have to rise above partisanship differences. I did a research survey, and I'll share the results with the church later, but it was so interesting. I did a diversity survey for our community, and I was kind of interested, how's it all going to play out? And there are all kinds of different things I asked, but one of the things I asked is, where do you align politically? And interestingly enough, we're somewhere in the 20 to 30 percentile for every political leaning in America today. A little bit left, a little bit right, center, or apolitical. You're like, I knew they were in here. I knew they were here. (laughs) They're here. But in our community, we're just about split in every way. We have to be able to rise above the differences and invest intentionally in community. We have to rise above racial divides and reach for brotherhood. We have to rise above our personal rights and preferences. When we're offended, When we're hurt, we feel wronged. We have to rise above and reach for grace in Christ and do the will of our Father. We have to choose the way of Jesus in community as a family. John, and and many of the apostles allude to this, but John, one of the the longest living apostles, he says, How can you say you love God who you don't see if you don't love your brother or sister who you do see? He says, if you don't love your brother or sister who you do see, you actually don't know God. In other words, you know a God who's really just a higher form of yourself that agrees with you about everything. But you don't know God as he actually is. This takes family. How do we do this? Jesus comes to offer us something stronger than the world if we let it shape us, if we let it become the thing that guides us, the spiritual formation of love for one another in this community, being a family. Um, and this is, this is a tremendously open opportunity for anyone who's here. You go, I just, I'm kind of getting dipping my toe in this Christian thing, right? I'm Just trying to figure it out. I want you to know this is an opportunity for you to see the, who you become in the future as a completely different person. Not in your personality. You like tofu and flatbread, great. Like, you're always going to like tofu and flatbread. <laughs> Which is just a weird thing. I don't even know why I said that. But that's, <laughs> that's your thing, right? But, but, but if you want to be shaped to be less independent and autonomous and isolated and anxious, and you want to be shaped to be more interconnected and loving and have identity that comes from human beings that you're doing life together, it's not going to come through CrossFit. Really? It's not going to, you'll get some, you'll get yoked, you'll get the six-pack or whatever it is you're after. <laughs> you might pass out somewhere along the way, right? I love the videos, it's a total riff, but I love the videos of when people are trying to do CrossFit and the bar just falls on their head and they like roll over, and then they try to recover like they're cool, because the whole gym's open and everybody's kind of watching each other, and they're like, oh no, it's fine, but they're like, I can't see straight, you know what I mean? they Anyways, <laughs> we, one of the things we do on Sabbath with my kids is we watch fail videos. So that's why it's, it's fresh in my mind. But this is a tremendously, opportu- a tremendously open opportunity, but I got to tell you this, this is an exclusive group of people. It's inclusive exclusivity. Meaning it's, it's all are welcome to the family who exclusively choose the will of the Father in the family. And you can sit on the outside, you can hang out, you can be around the family, you can go on vacation with us. It's fantastic, you'll have a great time. But if you want to be in the family, you have to make some exclusive decisions to put the will of God above your own will. And Jesus doesn't hold back any punches. He says, anybody who wants to be my follower, they have to be willing to give up everything to follow me. But he also says, when you do, you will gain a hundred times brothers and sisters and homes and family. The church, as Jesus defines it, is meant to stand in the gap for the broken, discouraged, anxious, displaced, depressed, and lonely world and offer a family. Legislation is not going to accomplish that. Technology is not going to accomplish that. Like, we're going to get into the metaverse or whatever's coming next, and it'll be great for a little while, but it's not going to accomplish the connection we're longing for as people. Academia is not going to accomplish that. Progressive ideology or conservative ideology is not going to accomplish this. Only the kingdom of heaven, only the church, only those who are willing to do the will of the Father in community. God didn't come as a politician or a philosopher or a superior deity on a throne. Instead, he came as a little baby raised in a family, dependent on others. For 30 years, he's ambiguous to us. We don't even know what he was doing, learning a trade, interacting in a collectivist society, knowing his neighbors, still doing the will of God, but raised in a family brought the kingdom of heaven to earth as he laid down his life to pay for this family, brothers and si- sisters who would be together. As we get ready for communion, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, <clears throat> the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those who are around them will create community. Isn't that good? This is not about what you or I think is best. This is not about what we think is convenient or ideal or our vision of what the church should be. It's about those that God has placed in your life, those you're sitting next to, those you do small group with, those who are in your neighborhood, those who God has placed in your life to choose to love them as Jesus loved them. We have a beautiful family here in Tribe. Would you agree? And there's, there, I think, man, we've, we've, we've discovered so much, but I just got to tell you, there is more to discover. There is more to experience in the grace of God in our lives through one another. There is more of the kingdom of God still at hand. It's near, but we've got to be intentional. We've got to lean in even more in our small groups, in our daily lives, in our Sunday worship as we gather around the table, the family dinner of communion. This must be stronger than that. The way of Jesus, not our own way. As we get ready to take communion, I want to share a blessing over you. And this, is, this will be my prayer for communion. So we can take it right after this. But <clears throat> this is a blessing of uh, Northumbria monastic. Northumbria, I feel so bad because I told her I wouldn't say it, but there it is. Um, Northumbria is this community. It's part of the new monastic movement. It's part of this community that's kind of borders Ireland and the UK there. And, um, but I want to say this blessing over you because you're about to go back out into the world. We're going to leave here today, and you're going to go back to your jobs and your family, all the rhythms that you live in, the wilderness of the world that is trying to shape in you its version of humanity. And we're going to come back together again next week and we're going to keep at this thing together. But it's going to be together with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives through one another that we are going to experience the family of God. So before we go back to our small tables in our apartments or our houses and right before we have one meal in this small little cup and bread at the big table, at Jesus' table, Let me just read this blessing over you and then we'll spend some time. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors.